You're listening to a podcast series celebrating the 25th anniversary of GINA, the global initiative for asthma. We're in London to interview world-renowned asthma specialists, healthcare professionals and patients, focusing on the issues, objectives and achievements of GINA and to look ahead to the future developments that the next 25 years will bring. Well, in this podcast, we're going to talk about the natural history, basic pathology and clinical presentation of adults with suspected asthma with Professor Mark Fitzgerald, Professor of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Can I first ask you to give us an overview of the diagnosis of asthma and how does asthma develop and who is prone to this disease? So uh, that's a great question. Uh, we define uh, asthma in GINA as a heterogeneous disease. So the first thing we emphasize is that this isn't a single disease. It's usually characterized with chronic airway inflammation. It's a defined by a history of symptoms, wheeze, shortness of breath, chest tightness, and cough, that over time and intensity vary and are associated with variable airflow obstruction. And this definition is important to understand because it means that some patients will be relatively well and they may underestimate the severity of their asthma. They may, in fact, stop taking their asthma treatment. How common is asthma is important. Uh, it's very common. Uh, it affects 5 to 10% of the general population. And it's a potentially serious chronic disease because we know if it's not controlled well, it can lead to significant use of healthcare resources and even death. Uh, these symptoms that it causes, uh, wheezing, shortness of breath, chest tightness, they vary over time in frequency and intensity. These symptoms are driven by changes in the airway. First of all, the airways, you can have narrowing, you can have increase in airway wall thickening and increased mucus. The symptoms may be triggered or worsened by factors such as viral infections, allergens, tobacco smoke, exercise and stress. So it's easy to understand how a person with asthma exposed to these various triggers in different settings may see their asthma vary. The good news about asthma is that we know it can be effectively treat treated. Uh, when asthma is well controlled, patients can avoid troublesome symptoms during the day and night. They need little or no reliever medication, so a medication that just treats them symptomatically. They can live full and productive active lives, have normal or near normal lung function, and avoid serious asthma flare-ups often termed exacerbations or severe attacks. Could you now focus on the diagnosis of asthma? Uh, so the diagnosis of asthma is really important. First of all, patients will have a history of the characteristic symptoms we've already talked about. But even more importantly, we need an objective assessment to show that they have evidence of variable airflow limitation. Uh, and the simple way to do this is to do a breathing test whereby with spirometry we can show that they have variable airflow obstruction by measuring their lung function and then giving them an inhaler, a reliever or a bronchodilator. And if their lung function improves by 12% or 200 mils, it confirms the diagnosis of asthma. The challenge we face is that a lot of patients with relatively mild asthma will actually not show this reproducibility or reversibility, and they require a more specific test. We call it a methacholine challenge test. And there's a huge problem in the general asthma population. We were involved in a large study in Canada that was published in JAMA a couple of years ago that showed that a third of patients in Canada 
with a clinical diagnosis of asthma and didn't actually have asthma. So we often wonder why asthma patients don't take their treatment. Well, if a third of the patients we describe as having asthma don't have it, they are showing quite significant insight in not taking treatments that aren't very effective. Uh, the other challenge we face is that clinicians will see patients who will come to them with a prior diagnosis of asthma, and once somebody has a diagnosis of asthma, and if they're on treatment, uh, it's difficult to show the, that they have asthma now. And the analogy I would give you would be, you might have been diagnosed correctly with diabetes 10 years ago, and you come to see you as a clinician now with the diagnosis of asthma, and it's difficult to confirm the diagnosis of asthma because you're being treated for asthma. So one of the novel things within the GINA management strategy is that we actually have a section which describes how you can make the diagnosis of asthma on somebody who has already been, or confirm the diagnosis of asthma by somebody who's already uh, on treatment. And these are uh, an important group of patients to document. Why does asthma develop in a particular population of patients? I think this is a very important uh, point, both for healthcare providers and patients, in that unlike cystic fibrosis, for example, where you've got a single gene, in asthma, we have a complicated interaction between a genetic predisposition and environmental exposures. And we know, for example, in children, there's actually a, a window of opportunity in early childhood where if there's overexposure to antibiotics, if we disturb their gut flora, it actually contributes to the potential development of asthma. And some of my colleagues at the University of British Columbia and across Canada have actually identified uh, bacteria within the gut in the neonatal phase that if they're eliminated, the risk of developing asthma is much higher. So this would be a very specific uh, trigger. We also know that asthma is an allergic disease. So we know that if you take children born of allergic parents, that you can actually have interventions to reduce their exposure to allergens. It's been difficult to show benefits from allergen avoidance for a specific allergen, for example, house dust mite, but we do know that uh, multifaceted approaches are effective, but the relative contributions of those different interventions or exposure limitations is uncertain. Uh, but there are some recommendations that we can make to our patients and to mothers and parents of children would be, for example, to avoid exposure to environmental tobacco smoke during pregnancy in the first year of life. We know that, for example, children delivered by cesarean section are more likely to develop asthma that are delivered vaginally, and this is because children delivered vaginally from de novo at the time of birth are exposed to some bacteria and some immune stimulation that that would give them. Uh, there's some controversy about breastfeeding in that it has general health benefits, but its potential to prevent the development of asthma uh, is uncertain. Uh, we've, going back to the story of asthma uh, and antibiotics, we've shown uh, in large studies in British Columbia that exposure to uh, paracetamol or acetaminophen, uh, as well as antibiotics, uh, can contribute to the development of asthma. Is that at a young age? Yes. Uh, and we sort of a bit lateral or, or, to uh, the uh, asthma story, we've now found that there's a huge increase in peanut allergy among young children. And what we've learned is that 
there was a concern raised about exposure to peanuts and parents avoided all peanuts in their children and their risk of anaphylaxis was much higher. And now we know from very well done randomized controlled trials that in fact, if children are exposed to a small amount of peanut allergen early on, they're less likely to develop. So uh, the important consideration here is that there's no specific thing that parents can do and it's likely that it'll be a sort of a group uh, of interventions. We can't generally change our parents, uh, but there are some things we can do or the parents can do in anticipation of the infant's birth to avoid asthma and then once the children are born. What is the underlying pathology of asthma and how does that affect the management of it? So again, that's a great question. So historically, we considered asthma to be a homogeneous disease. So a patient came into your office with asthma and one size fits all. But in fact, with our greater understanding of the underlying biology of asthma, we know that a significant proportion of patients have allergic asthma. It's driven by eosinophils. And then we have another group of patients who are non-allergic. And these patients are clearly uh, driven by different factors because when we do biopsies of their airways and we look at the underlying pathology, it's driven by neutrophils, a, a, a different cell from uh, eosinophils. And what we describe these patients are patients who have palsy granulocytic, so they have very little cellular infiltrate. And you might say, well, what difference does that make? Well, we now have identified some very novel new treatments that are effective against eosinophils and it can be transformative, these new drugs. The tools that we have available to identify eosinophilic asthma, you can identify it from a simple blood test, you can identify the prevalence of uh, eosinophils in sputum, etc. But what this pathology does, linking to the management, is that if you identify a patient with severe asthma, which is eosinophilic, there is a miraculous response to these new targeted treatments. They're very expensive. So the challenge we face as clinicians is to match the right patient with the right drug at the right time. In contrast, for example, non-allergic asthma, we've been much less successful in identifying targeted treatment for this population. So as a clinician, we're faced with patients who have, have common symptoms and, and, and uh, we're only now beginning to develop the point of care tests. And in the case of non-allergic, non-eosinophilic asthma, we're not there, that we're better able to predict the treatments uh, that patients might respond to. And then we have a further patients with late onset asthma, patients with fixed airflow obstruction who have had badly managed asthma for 15, 20 years, never smoked, and they're often mislabeled as having uh, COPD. And then we have a group of patients where the asthma seems to be related to obesity, often middle-aged uh, women with not a non-allergic component. So knowing that asthma is this heterogeneous clustering of patients will over time allow us to focus more on the treatment for the specific uh, patient group. Professor Mark Fitzgerald, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure, thank you. The GINA website has a suite of up-to-date, evidence-based documents, booklets, videos, an implementation toolkit, and other useful information. If you're a healthcare professional interested in GINA resources for your hospital or healthcare system, or if you have ideas for new resources, please email us via our website, ginaasthma.org. Thank you for listening and for sharing in our mission to reduce the global burden 
of asthma.